Creating your own reality. Is it possible for me? I am Jennifer K. Hill, the Consciousness Architect, and I am here to tell you that it's not only possible, it's closer than you might think. Welcome to the show. Hello, friends, and welcome back to another episode of Regarding Consciousness. I am Jennifer K. Hill, the CEO of this show, a CEO of life, and the CEO of OptiMatch, as well as the host of this show. And today we have a special guest with us, Dave Rabin. Dave and I got connected through an organization we're both a part of called Baby Bathwater. And Dave, in his own right, is incredible. He has a PhD, an MD, and is a board-certified psychiatrist and neuroscientist. We've been having a lot of neuroscientists on the show lately. And he is the co-founder and chief medical officer of Apollo Neuroscience, the first scientifically validated wearable system to improve heart rate variability, focus, relaxation, and access to meditative states by delivering gentle layered vibrations to the skin. In addition to his clinical psychiatric practice, Dr. Rabin is also the co-founder and executive director of the Board of Medicine and a psychedelic clinical researcher currently evaluating the mechanism of psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy in the treatment of mental illness. Dave, it's such a pleasure to have you here today, and you and I are both very passionate about psychedelics, mental health and being, and all of everything in between. So thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, so talk to us a little bit about this. We were just sharing offline about a friend of ours, a friend of mine that I'd introduced you to who is loving the product. Maybe for people who aren't aware of what you're doing at Apollo, talk to us a little bit about how you came to create this product that helps to enhance meditative states. Absolutely. I, it was actually, it was it's been many years in the making. And we started the work in 2014 at the University of Pittsburgh. I was, in the few years before that, I was spending a lot of time treating patients, mostly veterans who had severe PTSD, traumatic brain injury, and other mental health conditions after returning from conflict situations. And they were having a incredible amount of difficulty reintegrating back into civilian life. And no matter what we threw at them, no matter what best in class medications that we used, psychotherapy, all the stuff that we were taught in training should work and help these folks, we just weren't seeing the results that we were taught that we should expect. And this was frustrating to, to us as the doctors, but it was also, of course, even more frustrating to the patients who were struggling, most of whom were veterans who really made the ultimate sacrifice for our country and we were not serving them adequately. And also at the same time, these folks, veterans in particular, are a very interesting population because they have some of the highest levels of physical and, and mental training of any anyone in our society because uh, they have to go through basic training and they have a huge tolerance for stress. This seemed to be a little, little bit contradictory to me that they would struggle so much coming back. And so we started to work with them more closely and try to understand what's going on underneath the surface. Because if perhaps we are, we're trying to treat their symptoms of PTSD, traumatic brain injury, chronic pain, et cetera, by constantly throwing medications at them, but only 30% of people get better with PTSD, for instance, get better long-term, that's a pretty poor statistic. So we're still leaving 70% of people symptoms unaddressed effectively. And this is a huge problem in our society. And it costs an incredible amount of money every year just to treat these folks who are not even getting treated adequately. Mm -hmm. 
And so we started to ask questions with my neuroscience research hat on, starting to ask questions about maybe we're not doing this right, right? Maybe there's another way to do it. Maybe there are better ways to do it. Maybe there's stuff going on underneath the surface that we're missing. And so we started to research this in the lab at the University of Pittsburgh. And this led me to look at everything under the sun that could help these folks. And of course, what stood out at the top of that list, in addition to things like deep breathing, breath work, meditation, yoga, mindfulness techniques, soothing touch, soothing music, service animals, all these things are helpful. But the thing that had the best results, the treatment that had the best results of anything was MDMA-assisted therapy, which has just completed their final FDA phase three trials and are expected to have FDA clearance sometime in 2024 this year. And this was fascinating because it flipped the response rates completely uh, on its head. People who were completely treatment resistant or what we call treatment refractory, non-responsive to our standard of care for PTSD, even veterans were having a somewhere between a 60 and 88% response rate to MDMA-assisted therapy with just three doses of medicine, not taken every day, just three doses of medicine and 42 hours of psychotherapy with two therapists. And they were staying better long-term and actually getting better long-term after the treatment had stopped. And we've never seen anything like this before in the history of psychiatry. So looking at how that was working and seeing the results that we were getting from those trials, I started to investigate that more and start to study how MDMA was working in conjunction with MAPS and the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies that has the nonprofit that has funded most of the MDMA research with the FDA, if not all of it. And we started to figure out that MDMA is so interesting because PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, is a disorder of dysregulated or dysfunctioning fear response in our bodies. And when we've been exposed to severe trauma or stress over time, that trains us to be in a stress state all the time and in our minds and our bodies. And MDMA therapy is a, MDMA is a medicine that when combined with the right therapy, it amplifies or appears to be amplifying safety cascades in our emotional brain. And so when you think about the idea that safety could combat fear, it makes a lot of sense, right? Because our nervous system is actually mapped that way where our parasympathetic vagal system responds to safety and safe stimulation and soothing stimulation and our sympathetic fight or flight system responds to threat and fear and newness, uncertainty. And as we started to pull on those threads around safety being the antidote to this dysregulated dysfunctional fear response in these folks that was overactive all the time, we realized that actually had a lot of evidence behind it in other areas of medicine and psychotherapy. And as we started to research that, we realized we could introduce safety into the body in different ways, including through soothing touch and including through wearable technology, like what I'm wearing on my chest, which is what event, uh, ultimately was released as Apollo Neuro, the wearable technology you mentioned in 2020. That's incredible. It really does make sense. Uh, so often as human beings, no matter what our age, from when we're children to older adults, if we don't feel safe, then fear consumes us. And then we don't have the capacity to be loving or kind to anybody else, let alone to ourselves. And I think it's brilliant what you're saying that you were able to mimic, if I'm understanding you correct, Dave, that you were able to mimic the effects of MDMA using this wearable technology. Am I understanding that correctly? 
Yeah, at least some, we could mimic some of the safety effects of MDMA, similar to how somebody who is, who has experienced MDMA related to getting a warm hug from a loved one or holding a snuggling with a pet or having somebody you love hold your hand, right? All of these, or having your mother hold you and swaddle you when you're crying as a baby. These are a lot of the similar memories that people relate the experience of MDMA to, which are all universally soothing and calming experiences. And so what we were trying to figure out was to answer this question, if MDMA is working by molecularly amplifying the safety pathways in the emotional brain, and we get there in other ways, right? Does it require the drug from the outside, taking a drug from the outside to artificially amplify these pathways to get to emotional sense of safety for healing? Or does it just require the safety and the drug is just one of many ways to get there? And I think when we when we mapped out, after starting to understand this, we mapped out the entire nervous system pathway of safety from soothing touch, soothing music, soothing smells and scents like chicken soup from your mom or whatever it might be for you, right? And it turns out that when you look at what these different things, these senses do to the brain, they're all doing basically the same thing. They're all going straight to the emotional cortex, part of the emotional cortex called the insula, which is identifies the context and the emotionality around things we sense. And then it takes that information and says, if I have the time and the moment to experience this soothing sensation and focus on it, then I can't possibly be running from a lion right now. Yeah. And so then just like with your breath, if I have time to take a deep breath in any moment, I can't possibly be running from a lion right now because my body evolved over hundreds of millions of years to not allow me to take time to do that if I was actually in real danger, real survival danger. And so that sends a signal from the emotional cortex directly to the amygdala, that core fear center that's hundreds of millions of years old that says, hey, fear center, you don't need to be blasting off right now. You're actually safe enough to breathe or safe enough to feel good, feel soothing touch, feel calm in this situation. So you can't possibly be in an actual survival threat. And it's the combination of that plus the soothing nature of the stimulation with Apollo, it's gentle sound waves that feel like an ocean wave on your body that remind us that we're safe enough to begin the healing process or to begin the recovery process, if that makes sense. Mm. So many things are coming to mind. A, do not let me forget to introduce you to one of our other guests, John Robinson, who just joined us a few months ago, who wrote a book called Ecstasy as Medicine. And I think there could be a lot of beautiful collaborations there. And I want to, I'm thinking about the logistics of this. Obviously, people talk a lot about oxytocin. It's the feeling a mother feels when she sees her child. Is this, is what you're doing with Apollo or what, for example, some of these medicines like MDMA do? Is it releasing oxytocin at some level? And is that what has us feel safe? I, oxytocin is a huge part of it. Uh, but there's a whole molecular cascade that occurs, right? So when we experience, and I think this is what's so interesting about the study of touch as one example, is that touch, soothing touch, is our most fundamental, most basic way of communicating safety to one another instantaneously. Almost as even faster than making eye contact and smiling at another human being. You can, you know, hold somebody's hand or put your hand on their back. And as long as they trust and feel safe around you, you can impart a sense of safety almost immediately and it's not verbal. 
And this, we know this because ancient mammals going back hundreds of millions of years prior to humans ever existing were coddling and, and nursing their young when they were first born, when they were upset without bike to convey safety without any words, they didn't have language and the newborns can't understand language. So touch, and we still do this today, right? This behavior is still something where we come into physical contact with our newborns in order to soothe them. And so when you look at what happens in the brain and body, when that bonding occurs is that soothing touch, it's the same thing. It's all the neurotransmitters that get released when we take a medicine like MDMA. So it's the serotonin, it's the dopamine, serotonin being a salience or meaning-making part of the uh, neurotransmitter system. Then there's dopamine and endorphins, which are all reward-based neurotransmitters. And then there's oxytocin, which is that bonding neurotransmitter we were talking about hormone, which is critically important for building connection and maintaining connection and safety. And then of course, there's other things that are really interesting, right? Like endogenous cannabinoids. So the molecule, we have an entire cannabinoid system in our bodies. We make our own. Part of the reason why we like them from the outside is because we make our own. And when we don't make enough of our own, what do we do? We often try to seek them from the outside to restore the balance of the system. And the same thing with opioid molecules, right? We have an endogenous opioid receptor system. That opioid receptor system is capable of receiving opioid molecules that we make ourselves when we're soothed and calm and also opioid molecules from the outside. And so we can make our own painkillers, right? We can, our bodies learn and have the ability to make our own molecules that actually train us to be able to be pain-free over time. And it works at a different level for different people, but in general, that system is always there and it's always running. And so when we understand how impactful something like soothing touch is, it impacts the entire body all the way up and down. And when we look at people who in the environment, and again, we don't have studies of Apollo looking at oxytocin yet, but the same responses that people have to soothing touch where we know and, and eye contact, empathy, these kinds of things where you're really genuinely connecting with another human being, people report the same feelings with Apollo and the soothing vibrations from Apollo. So chances are it's augmenting and functioning on the same system. And we see that as measured by decreased resting heart rate and increased heart rate variability as a measure of vagal tone, increased uh, vagal tone in general, decreased breath rate. All of those same signs go along with getting soothing touch or doing a gentle meditation practice or getting a hug from a friend or things like that. So they all seem to be functioning in roughly the same way. But we do see people who don't get enough touch, who don't get enough soothing sensations in their lives, who don't have enough connection with other people, reporting more loneliness and more drug abuse. And what drugs do they abuse? They abuse drugs that are targeting that same system. Oftentimes that touch would normally be naturally amplifying, right? So we all need more of this in our lives. And it's important to understand that what neuroscience has demonstrated about the system, because if we understand that we can get these hormones and neurotransmitters that make us feel so good, completely naturally and free, then why wouldn't we make that more of a part of our culture? What I'm very present to as you're sharing this, Dave, is what I would call the intimacy epidemic. I think so many of us are starved for intimacy. In fact, I can fairly say to myself, 
just speaking for myself, it's one person's opinion. Having been in a marriage to my ex-husband for 14 years, a great man helped me so much. And yet I didn't even know what the word intimacy meant. I had zero until I met my now husband. I didn't even understand it. And I remember I was at an MDMA medical ceremony in the last year with my husband and with some other people there. And as we went through the process, my husband and I are naturally like when we first started dating, I didn't even know what it was like to have safe touch. In fact, one of my dear friends who just passed away, God rest his soul, Dr. Mark Golston, is a psychiatrist who knew my ex-husband and met my now husband. And I remember when he met my now husband, he's he's a keeper because he saw how intimate and loving we were. And yet I remember being in this MDMA ceremony and people were looking at us and there were a few men in the ceremony and they were just saying, I don't think I've ever had that. I haven't had that level of kind touch, intimate touch from anybody, their spouse or otherwise for in some cases, decades. And what if to some extent, Dave, this is what's causing the epidemic for us of fear and anger and divisiveness that we're seeing around the world is this intimacy epidemic because of the lack of healing touch, the lack of feeling of safety that is having all of us, as uh, Don Miguel Ruiz puts in his book, Mastery of Love, he says, it's like we're all walking around covered from head to toe in third degree burns. So the moment one of us gets close to the other person, we recoil in fear because it's so painful. So how do we combat that? What do we do, Dave? It's a great question. This is something that has fascinated me for years because in, especially in our patients who struggle with mental health conditions, many of them are under touch in their lives, right? And, and that's not unique to folks who have a mental health diagnosis. It spans most of Western culture. And when you really notice it is when you go to other countries where that's not the case. Like when you go to Southern Europe, where everybody hugs and kisses each other, or you go to certain parts of the Middle East, even where men walk down the street holding hands or in Brazil or South America, where men and women just, you know, kiss each other when they meet and hug. And it's, and it is an embrace and an eye contact thing that happens where we first and foremost, acknowledge each other as human first. And I think the most interesting thing to me about this is when we think about how we evolved as humans. And we talk about that amygdala piece, right? That governs that fear center that we were mentioning earlier that governs so much of our perception of the world and whether or not we feel safe in any given situation and whether or not the introduction of someone new or something new will make us, will be likely to make us feel safe or likely to make us feel uncomfortable. And I think a lot of it comes down to that fear center being important for not just fear detection, but detection of newness. So it's really more of a, the amygdala can be thought of in a lot of ways from a neuroscience perspective as like a contrast detector. So why is contrast interesting? Why is it interesting in a photo? Because it gives, it creates differential between one color or line or texture and another color line or texture. And that differential, the difference or the diversity is what creates beauty and richness in our sensations. So when we have that newness in the context of safety, when we have that diversity or that contrast in the context of safety, then differences become 
beauty. It becomes the most important thing that makes our lives interesting worth and worth living and exciting because there's always something new that can be discovered. There's always like the newness becomes incredible. The unknown becomes an adventure. And the challenge is that alluding back to, to what you said, and, and I love Don Miguel uh, Ruiz and, and his work. And I think that this idea that we're all walking around with third degree burns is like, we're all walking around afraid of each other because we're all so stressed out. We're all so overwhelmed. There's so much going on. There's we're, we were the average human with a cell phone is receiving more information in the first 30 minutes of waking up than the average human received within a week of being alive in the 1950s, right? So you think about how much incoming information that is, how much newness every single moment of every day. By the time we have an opportunity to bond with another human being, we're already like in tunnel vision, stressed out mode, heart rates up, breath rates up. And we're not in a position where we feel calm and collected and cool and ready to embrace the unknown. We're in a situation like, whoa, I'm already so overwhelmed. I don't think I can deal with the unknown right now. And that's where most of us sit in our day-to-day -day lives. Like we're striving for consistency and the idea of stability, but everything's changing around us all the time. So how do we just cling to that as much as possible rather than embracing the contrast and the difference? And so when we introduce a new person or an old person that is engaging in a new behavior, like an intimacy experience that we haven't been familiar with, then all of a sudden that fear center starts going off again because there's newness. There's the potential for vulnerability, right? What happens if I open up and let myself be open to this new experience and then I get hurt? So that there's this potential idea of a consequence that could happen. Somebody takes advantage of me, somebody or something gets the best of me and then I'm at fault and I blame myself. And then there's all this stuff that doesn't need to be part of intimacy that ends up becoming a very intense part of intimacy in our thought process. And so what's easier than overcoming that without any guidance is to just say, okay, I'm going to avoid it, right? I'm just going to, if it seems easier to just say, I'm going to isolate or I'm just not going to socialize with people I don't know well, or I'm not going to go out and put myself into new experiences that push my comfort zone. And, but those experiences and those things, as you alluded to, are critically important for our human survival and for our growth and development. And ultimately, when we put ourselves in discomfort, mild discomfort, when we put our, push our comfort zone a little bit, that's actually the times where we grow the most as humans, where we see what we're capable of and we learn the most about life and what we can do and what we can overcome and how we can adapt. And we enrich our lives by bringing and inviting indifference in contrast in a safe environment. And so now I, I would say in addition to there being an epidemic of, of a lack of intimacy, it's also an epidemic of chronic stress and the, and just overstimulation. There's just too much going on and it's too loud and it's too fast, too much of the time. And so how do we slow all of that down by training our filter in our brain that is there in all of us that says, I'm only allowing the stuff in that is serving me, the stuff that's not serving me, the stuff that I can't do anything about, that I can't control, the uncertain stuff. I'm just going to let that be and not spend all of my time thinking about it. 
I'm just going to let it be and I'm going to focus on the stuff that I can control. My breath, my movement, what I put into my body, things like that, and what I listen to, right? And when you start to focus on what you can control, all of a sudden, you start to realize you are actually in control a lot more than you think you are. And that sense of control helps us feel safe in our own skin, which helps us to connect with other people and their skin. Yeah, I think that I really love what you highlighted earlier, Dave, and I want to bring it back and reemphasize it for people. What can feel frightening? I just came from an event in India where I was speaking in front of 100,000 people or something like that, and that I'm fine with. But putting me in a crowd of people I don't know in a country I don't know with a million people total, it was a lot. And yet some of the biggest miracles that you have, like one morning, I remember I woke up and I was exhausted. Here I am halfway around the world. And they were meditating every day from 5 to 8 a.m. And I had been out late the night before and I was just mentally, physically drained and exhausted, Dave. I was just like, could barely open my eyes. So I graciously told our host, I said, I'm so sorry. I won't be there till 6.30 a.m. I need to rest. So my friend who's traveling with me and speaking with me, she, I hear her rustling around and I could have sworn, Dave, I swear to God, I heard her say, Jen, it's 5.30 a.m. And I was like, oh, okay, it's not 6.30, but I'll get up. So I get up, start like having my coffee, brush my teeth. And I realized it's 4.15 a.m., not 5.30. And I literally went in that moment, Dave, to, I am not going to survive this. Like I will die. Like I am being chased by a huge tiger right now and this is not going to work out. And yet in that moment, I connected to my breath. I went to my inner knowing. I grounded myself and I said, is it in my highest and best good right now to suck it up and do the thing that's hardest for me, which is to go to this 5 a.m. thing? And I did, Dave. And I will tell you, it was probably one of the best, most extraordinary mornings I've ever had in the history of my life. It tears me up. I literally, I'm really shy often and very nervous about dancing. I wound up getting to dance in front of 100,000 people, getting to have an ecstatic moment of bliss and ecstasy and meditation that I have never had before. And wow. all that would not have been possible had I not first pushed through that uncomfortability of the tiger of I didn't get enough sleep is going to eat me, <laughs> whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that's such a great account of how you can gently push your comfort zone and get great benefit from it, which is the same for all of us. And, and I think the one other thing that I would add is that everything we're talking about here is freely accessible to all human beings and everyone listening just by nature of being human. Just by being born, we all have access to these tools and they're, they don't cost anything. And we can all share our love and affection and intimacy safely with other human beings as well. And that is a true act of kindness and and by sharing our love and healing and intimacy with others because it makes sure that both our, ourselves and the people that we're around, regardless of whatever else is going on in our lives, remember that we are actually all connected and we're all part of the same humanity and the same earth humanity organism and that we're all part of this and we're all human before we're everything else. And I think that when we're under stress and chronic stress in particular and overwhelmed all the time, we often focus on the differences, the contrast as new and as uncertain and as an idea that if you're so different from me in the way you look or seem, then you must be dangerous to me by default rather than saying, 
oh, this person is also a human first. Then they have all these differences from me. Oh, those differences are interesting. Let's explore what those are. Maybe I can learn something from those. So if we think about our relationships from the standpoint of focusing on the fact that we are all human before we're everything else, and that everything else is really the enriching part of what brings the beauty to our relationships and to our lives, then we cherish and relish the differences, right? Rather than fearing them. And we appreciate them because that's what makes things exciting. Yeah, if I may piggyback on that, I'm going to share an exercise that I learned. I was in a thought leader group years ago. We used to meet every six weeks or so in Monterey, California, and there were about 100 of us from around the world. And one of the exercises, it was right at the peak of the Hillary Trump election. It must have been 2016, I guess. And one of the exercises they gave us was what they called the seven-person exercise. And the exercise was to take five people who you already know and love. They could be your family, your friends, your colleagues, your spouse, your kids, whoever. And your only goal, Dave, was to listen for their greatness for one year. That was it. Just for one year, everything and do with them that you listen and look for their greatness. Easy enough, right? So then you have your number five person. Your, sorry, your number six person. Your number six person is a person who you don't personally know and yet you want great things for it. You want them to be successful. Maybe it's somebody you admire, but you don't know. And your goal is to listen for their greatness. And then there's the number seven person. The number seven person is the person you want nothing good for. You wish they would fall off a cliff. You're like, if I never heard from them again, or if they were struck dead, I would not be sad. Now I'm, I'm being a little exaggerating right now, but the goal is with the number seven person to find one thing, one thing that you and that person have in common. Maybe that you're human, that you breathe, that you're a father, a daughter, a son, a mother, or whatever it might be, and to listen for that person's greatness. And it was one of the greatest exercises I had ever done. And I've since taught it to a lot of clients. And it's very powerful just as a day-to-day -day thing to look at how can we find the one thing that ties us together rather than the millions of things we're focused on that have us be separate. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a beautiful, a beautiful explanation of an exercise that any of us can do, right? It's just, we only have so much time to spend focusing on anything at any given time. So are we going to choose to spend that time focusing on the things we dislike about people that are, or the differences that we are uncomfortable with? Or are we going to spend that time focusing on what we like and admire about people, what we appreciate about them, what interests us about them, what we find great about them, right? Every moment has everything in between that we can focus on, but there's only so much attention in any given moment. So it's up to us to choose what we the lens through which we see the world and ourselves. And interestingly, I think what we've seen is that the more people focus on and practice, because it's all about practice, right? It's we're not, if you're not doing this already, then it, it's really just because we haven't learned or been taught how to do it and we haven't practiced it. But gratitude is looking for greatness or gratitude as thanking and being grateful for what we have and finding things to be grateful for is like an emotional muscle that you can train every moment by looking for things to be grateful for, right? It's, it's like strengthening your muscles at the gym, but you don't need a gym because you carry it around in here and you can tap into it any time just by trying to find things to be grateful for. And it's not going to be everything and that's okay. But, it, but with practice, we start to change the wiring of our brains over time 
as Eric Kandel showed in his Nobel Prize winning work in 2000, that practicing these thinking techniques actually shifts the way that our neurons are talking to each other so that over time, we start to see the world from a perspective of gratitude and grace and greatness rather than seeing the world as a place of fear and suffering and threat, right? And again, this just requires training. And that was a huge piece of why we developed Apollo because most of us, myself included, never learned any of this stuff growing up. We weren't taught it in medical school. We weren't taught self-care, right? Like none of this stuff was part of the equation for us. And so at least for most, and for most of the colleagues that I have as well. And so I think that there's a, there was a real opportunity to start to see how can technology be leveraged to help us feel safer on the go, to get more out of ourselves from a recovery perspective and to help us feel safe in situations that used to make us feel afraid because we were overstimulated, chronically stressed, overwhelmed, whatever, insert whatever word that works for you, right? And if you can calm the body, and this comes from cognitive behavioral therapy theory, which is one of our also leading treatments for mental health disorders, is that if you can help somebody feel safe in a situation that used to be threatening, then you can retrain the brain to associate situations that used to feel threatening with safety, including intimacy, including including name X extreme sport that you might be afraid of, right? So all of those kinds of things can be relearned and retrained with practice, which is really empowering because that means we have a say, right? What we do matters. And that's really hopeful. I love it. I, I think even just giving yourself a hug every day, I only found out six, seven years ago, I was high functioning on the spectrum and I had zero self-regulation tools. Like my self-regulation was like inverted. It was so bad. And now one thing I do is part of my morning practice after I meditate is I just give myself a great big hug at the end of every meditation. And it's, you know what? You don't necessarily need somebody else to do it. When uh, COVID happened, I was by myself in London for a few months. And I remember I was like, need touch, hadn't touched anyone or anything. And then I just realized, you know what? Just about everything we can provide for ourselves. Yes, it's wonderful to engage with other people and to have devices like Apollo or medicines like MDMA. And yet we too are our own greatest resource for self-love. Whatever it is, it starts with us. As long as we bring our awareness and attention that, wow, this might be an area that I'm lacking in, self-regulation, ability to love and nurture and have compassion for myself. And just like you said, Dave, it's all about strengthening that muscle. If you had asked me 10 years ago, I had atrophied that muscle and I may have never even had that muscle to begin with. Yet over a decade, we can all learn over time, whether it's a day, a week, a decade, or 10 decades to develop the things that we need most and provide us with those tools. So I'm so happy you joined us today, Dave. And do you have any closing thoughts or anything you'd like to share with our audience before we wrap today? I think on the point you just made, it's really, it's really interesting, right? Because it's even Hippocrates said, going back to the ancient origins of Western medicine thousands of years ago, and Maimonides who followed shortly thereafter, and going back into other ancient traditions of Eastern and tribal medicine, they all mutually agree that the source of healing comes from the person seeking to be healed. Yes. So that means that we all have the capacity to heal ourselves first and foremost, as you said. And so rather than questioning that or doubting that or adopting or practicing a belief system that makes us, that, that confuses us to think 
we need something from the outside. I need to have this pill. I need to have this doctor. I need to have X, Y, Z from the outside to heal me from any number of things. The real way to think about it is that the source of healing comes from within us. Everything else is the tool that helps activate or unlock our own ability to nurture and heal ourselves. The question is, how do we unlock it? How do we actually allow what exists within us already, that muscle that, that we may not have trained that might feel completely atrophied, or we might not remember even that we have it. How do we remind ourselves about that ability that we're all born with this healing ability and that we can activate it in different ways. And that's where I think the stuff we're talking about, where, whether it's MDMA assisted therapy or a guided psychedelic experience with a trained provider or a really great massage from a friend or an expert massage therapist or Asian Chinese medicine practitioner and things like that, or Apollo is that they remind us that we are safe enough to heal, mm. right? Because when we're under threat, even if it's just perceived threat, like traffic or our kids screaming or too many responsibilities or the news or all of it at once, our bodies evolve to to just turn that fight or flight stress response system on. And that takes all of our resources away from the healing parts of our bodies to skeletal muscles, heart, lungs, motor cortex, and fear center, because that's what's needed to get us out of a survival threat right now. But if we're not actually in a survival threat, then we don't want all of our resources going to our skeletal muscles and our heart and lungs. We want them to go to the healing and recovery stuff, which includes the immune system, the digestive system, the reproductive system, the empathy and creativity systems, right? The sleep and recovery systems, metabolism, all of these things get fed nutrients and get more of what they need in our bodies when we are safe. And that is the core of what neuroscience has shown over the last, I would say, 30 or 40 years. That's really important to take away because it reminds us that, again, everything that we need is right here. We just need to give ourselves the fuel and the nourishment emotionally, mentally, physically to allow ourselves to unlock and activate that. And that which we all have. And that safety is critical as a foundation of all of it. Safety is critical to unlock healing. On top of that, we're also, as a community, especially a medical community, we're asking people to meditate and to do the breath work and to do the yoga and to do all these self-healing techniques without anyone knowing what it feels like to get there, right? So it's like asking somebody to build a puzzle or put a puzzle together with a blindfold. Like, how are you supposed to know what it to do? And so that's where the, what we call experiential learning becomes really important, where if I can give you, rather than me telling you all of this, rather than you having to listen to my words and internalize it and process it, and then go for the target in your meditations or your yoga or your breathing, what if, or your self hugs, right? What if I could give you that feeling? What if I could give you that feeling with one dose of guided MDMA therapy or one dose of guided ketamine therapy or the Apollo or one really great performed massage, right? Then you know what it's supposed to feel like when you get to where we're telling you to go. And that gives you target. 
So med entering meditative states is extremely challenging. We don't talk about that enough in our society, but it can take thousands of hours to be able to, of practice to learn how to enter meditative states on the go whenever you want. And um, some people just never get to that level of meditative skill, but we can all get there if we know what we're aiming for and what it's supposed to feel like when we get there. So that's where Apollo and psychedelic medicines really and soothing touch and soothing sensations really converge these powerful immersive sensory experiences because now we understand that we can give you that feeling right we can give you a sample of what it feels like for example with ketamine or with an apollo guided experience or combining both you can give somebody the feeling in their mind body memory of what it feels like to actually have a still quiet mind with no racing thoughts and for most of us, probably most of us listening, most of us don't even know that's a state that's possible to achieve. Yeah. And so if you could, yeah, right. So if you can show somebody what that feels like, all of a sudden they're like, oh, I remember this feeling from somewhere and I can get back here. I, I can, I have something to aim for. I know that when I'm doing my meditation, it's going to feel something like this. And then they have that target. And so I want to make sure that for everybody listening, that this is really important to understand because you shouldn't feel bad if you're struggling with your meditation or your yoga or your breath work or these self-healing techniques we're talking about because they are hard and they require practice. But the more that we can remind ourselves of the actual feeling, not just the process, but the feeling of entering these states and what it feels like to have a quiet mind and feel safe in our own skin or in our home or in whatever space we're in, wherever we are then the easier it is to get there. I love that. It, it definitely resonates with my personal experience of the first plant medicine journey I ever did with psilocybin a couple of years ago with, it was again, Dr. Led. And I remember hitting Dave, this frequency of joy. Now I had considered myself a pretty happy person. This is around 2021. And it's like stringing like an instrument, playing the string of an instrument and the moment that you've heard that sound, that frequency, or felt that vibration of joy, it's that same tune that you can then play again and again. And the same thing with MDMA. I hadn't done it for 20 years and certainly not in a therapeutic way. And then doing it, it's all of a sudden the five, I actually have two alpha waves where most people have one. Brain scientists have looked at my brain and I have two alpha waves happening simultaneously at all times. And so to help these I know, but it explains a lot, I'm sure. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> you're like, oh, that doesn't explain Jennifer. But it, I say that because I remember when doing MDMA, it was just pure stillness. It was so peaceful and still. And so that is my wish. Whatever you choose to do, plant medicine, psychedelics, using Apollo, using breathwork meditation, just know there are other sounds and frequencies out there and ways of being. And if you're struggling, I've been there. I've suffered from suicidal ideation, depression, anxiety, bulimia, you name it. And that's why my dream and that's why we have people like Dave Rabin on the show today is because I want to do whatever I can to share all these wonderful wisdoms and technologies out there so that those of us out there who are struggling don't have to go through this again. So on that note, Dave, where would you like people to connect with you? Thank you again for having me. First and foremost, it's such a pleasure to chat with you always. And I love our conversations. And if anybody's interested in learning more, please come find me at on socials at Dr. David Rabin on Instagram and Twitter, X. And you can also find me on my website at 
drdave.io. You can find Apollo at wearablehugs.com, which is what the kids call it. And and then if you want to learn more about my work and the work that's going on more broadly in the psychedelic space, we have deep conversations about consciousness and with a focus on psychedelics and the neuroscience of how our brains and bodies work on two shows on Spotify and Apple Music called Your Brain Explained, which is a quarterly special feature and The Psychedelic Report, which is your biweekly psychedelic news. And please reach out. I'd love to hear from you. Thank you so much, Dave. And thank you to each of you tuning in. My intention with every one of these shows we do is that perhaps you walked away with some little gem or piece of wisdom that helps you to give yourself a little bit more compassion, a little bit more love, and in turn, that we can then share that with the world. I am Jennifer Cahill. It's been a pleasure being with you today and wishing each and every one of you the capacity for greater intimacy with yourself and others. Thank you. Thank you.